You're listening to a Score North podcast right now, and if you're a business owner, so are your customers. In fact, I could be talking about your business right now, telling the tens of thousands of loyal fans about you and sending them to your business. Find out how you can partner with your favorite Score North podcast. Visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Fill out the form, and we'll get in touch with you quickly. Once Phil, Judd, Declan, or others start talking about your company, you'll be amazed at how many fans start showing up. So visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Get in the know, non-stop Vikings talk. It's Purple Daily on Score North and scorenorth.com. And welcome into Purple Access. Judd, Declan, and wait for it, Tyler Fornish. That's right. Every other week, uh, Chip Scoggins is on from the Star Tribune and Forno as well from vikingswire.com. Your one-stop shopping for all of the Vikings news that you might desire, including some columns from the sports dad that you'll find a couple of times a week. And this edition of Purple Access brought to you by our friends at Surly Brewing, the makers, the creators of Before I Die, which, of course, is the mission of uh, Score North and all of our shows uh, for the Vikings to win a Super Bowl before we die. So check out Before I Die, check out Furious, check out any one of the delicious beers from Surly Brewing, and also shout out to our friends at Quick Trip for being the presenting sponsor of Purple Daily and all of the offshoot shows that we have around it. All right, boys, let's get into a discussion. I feel like the, the and I'm not surprised, majority of conversation in recent weeks has been about the offense and the four starting quarterbacks and Ty Chandler or Madison. Let's actually flip this a little bit. Let's start off by talking about the defense, because there's no question. Brian Flores has done a marvelous job. The defense has gone from being unwatchable to being actually very, very competent and often good. Uh, but for now, I want to get in to two of the last three games, okay? The Bears' Monday night loss was a game in which the Vikings clearly were not at fault defensively for that defeat. But it felt like in the Bears, uh, what turned out to be the winning final drive by by Chicago, that the that Flores sort of uh, hit the brakes a bit and didn't blitz as much, didn't put as much pressure on the Bears, go down the field and win that game. And then the Cincinnati game, I think, is far more of a full-on meltdown a defense that hadn't given up a touchdown since the denver game at the end of that game uh gives up 21 points in the fourth quarter what have you seen from the defense because a lot of the time they play great football when they do struggle when things start to go wrong what are you seeing in in your expert analysis of what is not right here so i want to kind of start here every defense is beatable every scheme has what what are called beaters and we've talked about a lot. And last year we talked about, you know, how the Vikings are play a lot of, would play a lot of quarters coverage or, and they would play a lot of quarter, quarter, half. So it would be quarter, quarter, half would be quarters on one side, cover two on the other. Well, when you have those kind of coverages, you have route concepts that are, are, that are called beaters. So the one beater that uh, continuously beat the Vikings last year, and it was that Jamison Williams 40 yard touchdown against the lions uh, uh, in December last year. It's a pin concept. You have one side and running it in, the other, the backside, you run a post and that safety is put in conflict because he wants to go and crash with the in route. Well, then that leaves single coverage up top. And a lot of times that post is open like, and that post ended up being wide ass open as, as a lot of people like to say. So when you have those type of beaters, you're going to lose and that kind of happens, but it's how you adjust and adapt to it. And the Vikings with what they run right now, they run a lot of cover two and inverted cover two. So, you know, 
cover two, they, they run the, the old school Tampa two, which essentially is like cover three because the linebacker just runs super deep. And then when you invert it, the safeties come shallow and the corners go deep. But with those coverages, one thing that is constant is you can get beaten with a concept called dagger. Inside guy runs a go. Outside guy runs a, a deep in route. And that's how Jamar Chase got that third and 20. That's how DJ Moore had that 38-yard reception uh, at the end of that Bears game. And when you have cover, core coverages that you like to use, you're going to get beat with beaters. And you have to figure out now, okay, they figured this out a little bit. How are we going to change and adapt? And I think that's going to be the challenge for Flores here because the Lions like to run a lot of inbreakers. They like to do a lot of that timing stuff because remember, Jared Goff comes from that Sean McVay style of offense. They implemented a lot of those core concepts with what Ben Johnson is doing. So how are the Vikings going to change what they do and throw an extra wrinkle? Be like, okay, it looks like Tampa two. We think we can hit dagger. How are we going to adapt so we can close that gap? I think that's going to be the real interesting chess match here because of how well Flores has coordinated the defense throughout. And I don't think they're going to change the fact that they love running Tampa too, especially because of how they like to have their safeties up at the line of scrimmage pre-snap. And then they can just bail out that Josh Mattelis interception against the Packers. He was in one of the a gaps when he caught that interception, nearly 35, 40 yards deep. So I don't think that's going to change, but they're going to slightly modify what they do or disguise what they do. So they can try and prevent those dagger concepts from really making a massive impact in a negative way. Forno, why do you think the Vikings defense under Flores in the fourth quarter of these last five games has been so susceptible to giving up big plays and squandering leads? Like, I mean, the first, I think I saw the stat from Kevin Seifert that the quarters one through three, they are number one in the NFL in terms of points allowed. But in the fourth quarter and overtime, they are second to last. Is this just other teams picking up on signals and other habits that they've been able to do? We saw Baker Mayfield talk about that in week one. Uh, to start the year, but why has the Vikings defense specifically in the last five games been so susceptible to giving up big plays when it matters most in the fourth quarter? I'm not the only one that's been saying this as far as those of us who really grind the film. I ignore the first three weeks because they were still trying to figure out what in the world this was going to be. And then after that, you really saw a shift and a change. And that's when they kind of figured out, okay, we're comfortable with this. We have all these signals down and we have the ability to fully communicate on the back end. So I can kind of ignore that. The way I look at it is this defense is wild because it does stuff you don't normally do in the NFL. You do, they do stuff that you see in college and that Kevin Seifert piece was brilliantly laid it out with the kind of the stuff they were doing at Pitt. When you run a zero blitz, you don't run zone behind it. You run man. They're running zone. That's like the engage eight play you see on Madden. They're doing some of that stuff. And when you look at it from a, like an NFL perspective, it's like, are you really that crazy? The answer is yes. And it's working. So you can't really fault Flores for doing some of this stuff. I think one of the keys here, Declan, and I think we're going to see it a lot next week against the green Bay Packers. Once teams have enough time to really absorb and adjust what you're doing, they can make those adjustments and they kind of figure it out. And I, the Packers game is going to be really pivotal because while it's a young team and it's an inconsistent team, it is a very talented offense. Jordan Love has a lot of talent. Those wide receivers are all first and second year guys, but they have a lot of talent. 
Aaron Jones is still a great running back. Their tight end room is young, but has a lot of talent. The problem is it can be really inconsistent. Just look at the loss to the New York Giants, the loss to the Buccaneers. But when they're on, it can be really good. They did beat the Kansas City Chiefs on Sunday Night Football. So how are they going to be able to take what they learned in Week 8 and adapt it and be able to figure out what this defense is next week? That's going to be the key because, as you saw against the Bengals, they struggled. And then they started to kind of figure out some of the pressures and they were able to block just a little longer for Browning. And that's how he was able to hit that 20 yard uh, deep in to Jamar chase. That's how he was able to hit Tyler Boyd on the deep crosser in overtime. Those things matter. And how is that going to manifest? I don't know, but I think teams are starting to figure it out in game and they're able to make those adjustments accordingly. And it's up to Brian Flores and that unit to try and figure out a counter punch. So Pace has played great, and there's no d- debating that, you know, as a UDFA, he's given this team far more than can be expected traditionally from a guy who goes through the draft. But here's my question to you, because in talking about the Tampa 2 and the fundamentals, which go back to Kiffin and then Dungy and all, all that, Forno, um, the Tampa 2 relies, as you brought up briefly, on the middle linebacker to be an absolutely imperative part. How much does the return of Jordan Hicks help? And and just last year, I thought Hicks looks old and he's okay, but he's not, you know, but he took a pay cut and I'm like, okay, that's fine. Um, I think I was completely wrong, shockingly. And I think that the Jordan Hicks has played a pivotal role. How much does mm-hmm. Hicks's return in this scheme, potentially Sunday against Detroit, how much does that help from a personnel standpoint of a veteran being played who basically has the ability to run the defense? That's a great question. I'm not really sure how that's all going to manifest. Do you really take the green dot off of Ivan Pace Jr. because of how well he's played and the fact that you can continue to develop that as a rookie? I, I genuinely don't have that answer, but great I'll say this with Hicks and how they like to run this defense. I think you can start to rotate some of these guys, especially because you're looking at a playoff chase. Now, if Hicks is a hundred percent, he practiced in full on Wednesday, yep. but he also had surgery on his leg. Maybe you give him a little bit of time to like slowly build that up as far as being on the game, like game speed and stuff. Odie, you're fine, bud. Calm down. <laughs> Odie, it's okay. Um, good boy. Good boy. He is a very okay. good boy. Um, but it, I don't know how you're going to want to mess with that because pace has been playing really well, but Hicks was also playing, uh, at, at like a near all pro level, like not first team, but second team, he was phenomenal. So yeah. how are you going to manifest making that happen? I don't know, but I don't think there's a wrong answer because you have two guys that are playing out of their mind. The Vikings almost never play with two linebackers on the field. Correct. Maybe they start to do that more. I, I'm very intrigued to see what happens, but having Hicks back in the fold is a good thing. This is Tom Bernard. Can't get enough of sports talk with Phil Mackey and Judd Zolgad? Tune in to the new Tom Bernard Show podcast Monday through Friday as Phil and Judd join me to discuss the latest sports headlines and whatever else comes to mind. Just download the Tom Bernard Show app wherever you get your podcasts or visit TomBernardShow.com. It's another way to get more from me and Judd talking sports and having fun with Tom, and it's all at your fingertips. Download the Tom Bernard Show app now and join the conversation. Yeah, I, I think with Ivan Pace too, Forno, he's done more than more than enough job. And Jordan Hicks obviously uh, should be coming back here soon, which can make things uh, a lot easier. But do you think that this team can also contend the Vikings defense that is Forno? Can it still hold up its end of the bargain and be kind of the driver where before it was the offense 
Can you score points? Can you defense? Can you just do enough? Where now I feel like it's flipped, right? Where the Vikings defense uh, kind of has to carry them. Do you think they can carry them over these next three games? Or is it going to have to obviously be the be more of an offensive showing and finally get this back in order uh, so you don't have to rely on just you know holding a team to 12 or 14 points? I'm going to be honest. I don't think the defense has to carry this team. I think the offense proved last week that they can uh, hold up their own weight. And I think the defense is still going to need to play uh, like monicumly better than what they would have had to with Kirk Cousins at quarterback. Because let's just be honest, Mullins is a downgrade. Um, any quarterback that it would have started this year, any quarterback that has started this year for the Vikings has been a downgrade from Kirk Cousins. Like the weird thing is, we were robbed of a potential Kirk Cousins MVP conversation because he tore his Achilles tendon. And if you would have told us that in 2020, we would have all been like, you're absolutely bonkers. But he was playing at such a high level. And when you compare him to his peers, like he's still in the top 10 in total EPA for all quarterbacks. He played eight games. Like there was a level to his play that was so different from in past years that it's just unfortunate. But what you have in Mullins is you have a discount version with the gusto of Brett Favre. He is a gunslinger bozo. And I mean that in the most endearing way possible because he has that case Keenum gene where he's going to make like, all right, dude, what are you doing here? Kind of throws. And then he's going to make all these timing routes to the outside. Those comebacks, those outs where you have to throw with timing, precision, and enough arm strength. And he makes those throws. He makes tough, difficult throws. The, the really difficult part about why Mullins isn't a starting quarterback is the dumb stuff. The stuff that you can control that you just aren't able to fully rein in. And if he's ever able to do that, then maybe you can have a conversation about him being a starting quarterback in the league. He just makes too many dumb mistakes. And that's why he's a top five true backup quarterback in the league because he can come in and throw 26 to 33 for 303 yards. And he can make all these plays that you just don't see from backups. But then he makes the interception to BJ Hill. like, yep. Yeah. He's a backup. Uh, and you just got to limit the dumb. And there's, there's a real chance this team could win a playoff game with Nick Mullins because of how willing and aggressive he is in making those timing routes and throwing into tight windows and trusting his receivers to be able to make plays for him. So you bring up Tyler, a a great discussion point, which I love, which is because Nick Mullins is, is deep into his NFL career and he's not going to change. He is who he is. I don't think I don't think you're going to fix him. I don't think he's going mm-hmm. to one one day say, you know what? I've been trying to play like Brett Favre, and that's and and I'm not Brett Favre, and Brett Favre screwed up. Uh, but but Nick unfortunately makes mistakes at places where Brett probably didn't, or it didn't cost Brett. So what I've what I am very curious to see on Sunday is how Nick Mullins is managed by his play caller, because all coaches are stubborn and all coaches believe that, that their system is going to work. And Kevin O'Connell can't be faulted because on opening day of training camp, Kirk cousins was his guy. And yes, there were some problems occasionally, but to your point, he was playing great with Nick Mullins. Here's my question. And Nick Mullins does allow Kevin O'Connell to run his offense far more like he wants to than Dobbs does. It's just a fact, but Mm -hmm. is anything going to be altered on Sunday to try and at least give yourself a chance to cut down on, you know, in those two mistakes against the Bengals sabotaged, in my opinion, the entire game, because both were in field goal range. Uh, both were bad. The second one was inexcusable. So will you get anything that will from, from the head coach that will alter off perhaps how he tried to call plays 
two change that Odie agrees with me, by the way. Yeah, he does. He's uh, he's borking at a couple of uh, free weights in the corner of my office. Because well, uh, he wants a lift, and you yeah, won't let he, him lift. He really does. He wants to get <laughs> swole and get those muscles up. Get, well, who uh, can for, blame him? For all those all those lady dogs. Um, so I don't think the offense should change, and I don't think Kevin O'Connell should really feel uncomfortable in calling his offense for Nick Mullins. We just have to find a way to rein in some of that bozo behavior because right. it it's not like the stuff that's going on, the like those negative plays, he's not making awful decisions. Now, the Mike Hilton interception probably shouldn't have thrown that, but you could also see, and I asked around, Justin Jefferson on that in route was going deep, and I was curious. I'm like, okay, why is he doing that? Well, um, apparently, they like to, they will round off their routes They'll, they'll take it just a little deep. So when they come in, it creates an extra level of separation to be able to give you an advantage over the, the corner. Well, the problem was he just didn't see Mike Hilton. Probably shouldn't throw that, but if you're right. going to, you right. see him start to like arc that deep, maybe throw it to the, the back line of the end zone. And then it, you can talk about it. Okay, maybe that's not a bad decision, but are you really going to ask Mullins and Jefferson to have the kind of chemistry to improvise a route like that? Probably not. Um, the BJ Hill one is just, he just needs to learn. It's okay to take a sack. And then the, the screen that was just so beautifully telegraphed by Pratt. Like, I don't know if you can really blame Mullins for that because he just, it felt like when you watch the all 22 angle, he had it read. He was pointing, pointing stuff out. And then he just jumped it because he's far enough away where he shouldn't have that kind of impact unless he knows. And that that's film study. So he's making good decisions he's making really good throws with timing to the outside in tight windows he's doing the things that you want to see in this offense he just needs to get rid of the dumb stuff and I know it sounds really simple and quite frankly it is but it's also difficult to rewire somebody's brain and we talked about that with Cousins going into the the whole Kevin O'Connell situation in 2022 Kirk Cousins was always so conservative. How are you going to rewire a 34-year-old's brain to be able to throw it downfield and to be able to make all these difficult throws in tight windows? Well, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And I don't know if you're going to be able to unwire it like you are going to be able to wire it. I I just think Mullins is going to make a dumb throw, and you're just going to have to find a way to overcome it. Porno, what are you uh, excited to see with Ty Chandler in this offense now, especially if Alexander Madison's not going to be able to play? Do you feel like we can finally get a consistent running game from Kevin O'Connell, who has kind of botched things a little bit, and they've been stubborn with Alexander Madison? Do you think Ty Chandler kind of opens things up and makes this running game and offense kind of you know, hit where it's supposed to be instead of just being stagnant, which it has been with Alexander Madison? The the really difficult part about this conversation is uh, there are people taking victory laps like, oh, Ty Chandler's always the best back. No, he wasn't. And he, I think he is now. Um, some of the things that were keeping him off the field early on were he was just not seeing the field well in zone concepts. And you can see it. A, you saw it a lot over the course of the game against the Bengals. He, he was better in zone concepts, but they were running a lot of man gap power stuff where they're running counter where, hey, follow your blocker into this hole. And that's very simple. For a running back, all you have to do is be patient, follow your block. And he was able to get like 30 yards on a couple occasions. It was yes. great stuff. But with zone, you have to keep your eyes open and you have to make split second decisions. And for some people, it's a struggle. And for some people, it takes a long time. Chandler was better. I highlighted it in a film piece I did for Vikings Wire, where 
there was a wide zone play where normally he would take it to the left and he would try to cut it outside. No, he was patient and he saw the backside opened up and took it for 10 yards. Like those are the little things that he was not doing in the preseason and early on in the year. It's why they traded for cam Akers, And then it's also pass protection. He was a great pass protector in college. He's been inconsistent. And when you talk about how NFL coaches will view things, if you are a really good pass protector, but two plays a game, you completely stink and you blow your assignment. You're not going to be on the field very much. And while Madison doesn't have nearly the ceiling that Ty Chandler does, especially because you talk about 99th percentile uh, 40 yard dash, 99.7th percentile 10 yard split at 1.37 seconds. You're talking about elite level speed and burst for the position. What Madison does have, he has the little things down, the nuance. You can trust him to pass protect on third down. You can trust him to read the field relatively well in zone concepts. He's not able to take advantage of things like Chandler is, but he's doing the little things much better. And that matters when it comes to who you're going to put on the football field. Now that Chandler is in a better position for some of those things, it's showing on the field and he had that hundred yard performance, but I want to see where things go now. Are they going to continue to trust him with zone concepts? Is it going to be a lot more duo counter power or are you going to see some wide zone action and you can feel comfortable with him reading the backside? I don't know how it's all going to work out, but Chandler does provide you a much, much higher ceiling than Madison. And we're finally getting to see it because he's put it together. And you just hit hit on where O'Connell has to grow. O'Connell needs to grow in, in the fact of when you do have a guy like Chandler, what you just said is accurate. You got to find ways to use him. Like, like O'Connell's still young and has this idealistic, my system sh- should work, which all new coaches start with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there was no reason why you couldn't have found ways, especially on first and second down to use time more. And Madison, the problem is he should be a poor man's Chester Taylor, but he's not because he doesn't catch consistently mm-hmm. enough. But I, I think that this is the next, as important as this conversation is to the actual position, I think this is the next evolution of Kevin as a play caller and a designer, which is you also need to be, because the easiest thing, I, I mean, Steve Hutchinson once told AP, he said, Adrian, wait till I set the block and then go. Because mm-hmm. Peterson who, by the way, fundamentally was not good, unbelievable talent, but not good, would run up his back. So Hutch finally just said, wait till I'm done with my block. Wait till I'm throwing my block and then go through. It's stuff like that. T. Rich did the same thing. He said, Adrian, follow me. Where where I go, you go. And guess what? It worked. So like that's mm-hmm. the next thing because sometimes, sometimes I understand that you can love a guy like Madison or Chester Taylor, but you also have to understand that talent doesn't necessarily transfer to sports smarts. And now it's your job to make that, make that talent shine. I think that's O'Connell's next step. I don't necessarily agree with you, Judd, and I'm going to kind of lay it out in multiple parts. And you said that O'Connell needs to do a better job, like getting Ty Chandler on the field. Well, there's also a problem with that. If, if they know you don't trust them to pass block, which honestly in the beginning of the year, they didn't, you just put them on the field first and second down. Guess what the, they're going to know. They're just going to know you're going to give the ball to Chandler. So some of that you have to be careful with too, where it feels like, Oh yeah, I need to get this guy on the field more. Well, if you're just doing it to manufacture touches, the defense is going to key in on that and they're going to be able to stop it relatively easy or at least significantly easier. And I also think that O'Connell has done a really good job adjusting with the run game. 
it was a lot of inside zone, a lot of wide zone in those concepts early on. It has shifted significantly more to running more power concepts, counter, duo, power. It's it's the evolution of this running game, but the success of it hasn't followed, and a lot of that has to do with just Madison not being able to take advantage of holes because he doesn't have that burst. He is Leroy Horde. Modern-day Leroy Horde. And that's a great comp. That is a good piece to have on your roster, but you don't want him starting. Right. And now that you're transitioning to a lot more of these power concepts, which is honestly better for Reisner and Ingram, because they're more of those power guys. And Bradbury's capable enough, because a lot of these are, are combo blocks, and you're doing a lot of double teams. Bradbury can easily double team, and you can have him climb to the second level on these duo plays. So I think we have seen some evolution with Kevin O'Connell's play calling and scheming, especially in the running game. But I want to, you also have to be able to trust the players to be able to do the things that you're asked. And that's why Chandler hasn't gotten a lot of run, but he's going to now because he's earned it with the, the play on the field. Uh, last thing for me, Forno, uh, what have you made of Dalton Reisner here so far? So they, they get him, you know, they, they sell off as Cleveland. I should say they signed Dalton Reisner off the street do you think that's been a good plan for the Vikings? You know, should they have kept Ezra Cleveland? Dalton Reisner certainly hasn't been perfect. Uh, now I think even Cleveland's getting run at some tackle. If you revisionist history, would you go back and not do this trade and have kept Ezra Cleveland? What have you liked or not liked from Dalton Reisner so far? I, I think what I think is irrelevant here because we know the relationship that uh, offensive line coach Chris Cooper has with Dalton Reisner. And I think the Vikings just value what Reisner brings to the table more than Cleveland. And I think what how I view it is somewhat irrelevant. Um, I think Reisner's been fine. He's been an okay starting player. And all I've been begging for the Vikings to do for a decade, average guards. That's where uh, the, my whole mantra, guards don't matter, comes in. It, you don't need elite. Just be average or above. And that's what they're getting from Reisner and Ingram. Because it, I think they're the the least valuable position in terms of how much financial allocation you should put out there because they just have such little impact on the game as an overall level. Just don't suck. But the problem is the Vikings had guards that just absolutely stunk up the joint. Like the Dakota Dozers of the world, like they were so bad that it just uh, like absolutely morphed perception of a lot of people. What a guard should actually be. Rash has been fine. I don't know if I'd give him a decent sized contract next year. And the Vikings obviously didn't have Ezra Cleveland in their their plans. So they got, they got uh, the pick that's going to be at the very top of the sixth round because that pick was owned by Carolina before it went to Jacksonville. So now you basically get your comp fifth a year earlier because the top pick of the sixth round is going to be the last comp fifth pick. So I think it's fine, but I still think you're going to want to look at guard as a position to upgrade because I just don't think that Reisner is that guy. But, hey, I, I'm, I'll be, I can be proven wrong. Three games left. Detroit here, Green Bay here, Detroit there. What's your expectation? Two and one. Um, win the home games and uh, split with Detroit. Um, Odie, what are you chewing on? He's, I think he's got some plastic. Of course he does. Um, well, take that, the plastic away from him. We got a second. Yeah. Odie, Odie, come on, man. Come here, Don't bud. be chewing on plastic. Don't be chewing on plastic. Don't be. Come on. Be a smart player. <laughs> I know. I, I think two and one's the expectation. Um, if you go one and two, you may not make the playoffs because the Rams and Seahawks, 
they can win two of their last three. Um, yep. Just win. Um, I think if they go two and one, they, it's like a 99 or 98% chance they make the playoffs. And yeah, I'll take those odds. Heck yeah. All right, sir. Gr- great stuff. Again, check out uh, Tyler's stuff and my columns at vikingswire.com, vikingswire.com. A great site. Uh, he's Tyler Fornis. He's Declan Goff. I'm Judd. We'll talk to you later.